Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. How's it going, everyone? Champagne Sharks. We have with us our friend Josh Borman. So uh, we're talking about like theater today. And I had recently seen a show um, called Thoughts of a Colored Man. And Josh has worked um, in theater or adjacent to theater as long as I've uh, known him. I know Josh said that you said that you're less involved in theater than you used to be, but you're still kind of adjacent to it. So anyway, if you don't mind just uh, letting people know who you are, um, what your relationship to theater is, and, you know, plug anything that uh, you want to plug so people know um, who I'm talking to. Um, you know, did quite a few shows early on there. Uh, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, no, I have to make money. And uh, it turns out that unless you, you know, uh, are either just insanely fucking talented or already come with a great deal of money and or connections, uh, it's not super easy to make a living in theater, particularly as a director. So, um, you know, I, I, I still do some theater work. Uh, a lot of my friends are, you know, actors, directors, playwrights, really good ones too. Um, but in my day-to-day work, um, I don't do that quite as much. I've stepped back a little bit. Um, but, you know, still very much somebody who sees a lot of shows, thinks about theater a lot, um, and also with a couple of my friends who actually are actor playwrights. They sort of do both. Um, Brian and AJ are their names, and the three of us do a podcast together called The Worst of All Possible Worlds, uh, where we kind of turn a critical eye toward all sorts of strange pop culture goodness and tied into the overall decline of American empire. So that's my bit. Yeah, and please uh, check out that podcast. I am going to be a guest on it in the coming months as as well. So, And, and Josh is a really smart guy. We've had discussions about different topics on places like that hellhole clubhouse which was great oh god yeah (laughs) for a solid two weeks during the pandemic that place was really good in it i've never seen um a social media platform peak and crash as fast as that thing did that and does anybody even use clubhouse anymore at this point like is it dead uh well you know what's funny uh it's on my ipad i took it off my iphone Uh because it was just terrible after a while like like it when everyone was locked down to the pandemic, it was kind of great. And everyone had weird hours and you go on at two in the morning and all your friends were there. Like it was right. the middle of the afternoon. Right. But um, on my iPad is still there. And sometimes when I'm on the iPad, out of curiosity, I'm like, let me see how bad it got. And I, and I look and it's like just a handful of the most hardcore weirdos to me are still on right. it. You know what I mean? It's in like Twitter spaces. It's like take it off. Yeah, 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 yeah. And has turned to kind of crap too. <laughs> is, is it all, is it still all the people who are like, um, the Platinum Diamond Club, join this group for advice on how to make $10 million in two days? I mean, I don't know if it's because of who I follow or whatever, but that used to be a lot of it, right? And, right. and then I only pop in like once a month out of curiosity just to see. But um, maybe because of who I follow, when I go on there, it's always. Every now and then there's something like that. But usually there's like diaspora war stuff like, um, you know, black Americans versus um, foreign black people. Right. right dating right. stuff like, you know. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Is she a hoe? <laughs> she has 10 bodies. And all, all, all this like the same people 
I'm like, wow, during the pandemic, you were in here talking the same stuff every day. How can you not well, be I mean, tired of this yet? Because they're still trapped inside, right? Like, if, maybe, if, yeah, yeah, that's maybe. What I'm like, I, you know, maybe it may be getting out occasionally, but I think that the pandemic made us all uniquely stir crazy and we're still kind of bearing the brunt of that. Yeah, but I feel like they're still at the peak pandemic uh, state of mind. And whereas I feel like, oh, yeah, I mean, like this half in, half out. I feel like most people are in this half in, half out where, right. You're starting to get social engagements again, but you, you're not sure exactly how much socializing is overkill yet. You know what I mean? Like, Well, and, and if all you've been doing is, you know, for the past year and a half, um, talking about to what degree she's a hoe, um, you know, <laughs> it's a comfortable place to come back to at the end of a hard day full of social interaction, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but the, the uh, play that we saw, uh, we didn't see it together. We saw it separately. Right. Um, but it's thoughts of a colored man. And, um, you know, I saw it with uh, two black people and I thought it'd be actually interesting to talk about it with a white person because it's one of the things when I was watching it. I was, first of all, the people I saw it with, we were like, is this for us or is it for mm-hmm. white people? And it's kind of hard to say because it doesn't feel as curated for the white gaze as some black yeah. people I've seen. But it definitely is to some degree explaining blackness to um, white people. I will say this. I don't know about your showing. Um, for example, when I went to see a uh, slave play, for all the talk about democratizing theater and all this stuff, when I went, there was only like two or three black people in the whole audience. Whereas this show, I will admit, had the most black people I've seen on Broadway um, in a while. There was a good amount of black people in the theater and they seemed to be enjoying it. I yeah. can't say I particularly enjoyed it, but... I respected what it was trying to do. And I thought it had its moments. I'm not going to beat up on the whole thing. Like, uh, it just seemed a little bit after school specialist to mm-hmm. me in a lot of in a lot of places. Everybody felt like a type or a cliche from like a black movie. You know, like, like there's the athlete, the jock. There's the, um, you know, the guy from the projects. There's the woke guy. There's the um, black bohemian guy. You, you know, like everyone felt like, a type more than a real person. But yeah, I mean, when I watched it, I was really conflicted because I'm like, okay, I'm always complaining about how uh, straight black men are kind of erased from a lot of entertainment now, unless it's like, you know, to be pathologized. And this thing was, you know, trying to be focused on straight black men. Uh, It had a gay black male character as well. It didn't paint all straight black men as like raging homophobes. Right, right. No, and, and there was definitely a moment where, and I'm sure you remember the moment where I yes. thought it was going to go down that road. And I was really happy that it didn't, um, where it was like, and it was in a barber shop too, which of yes. course is so fraught with so many other uh, stereotypical portrayals traditionally, particularly in theater. Um, and no, I mean, I, I, I think that my read on it was pretty similar to you, honestly. I mean, I obviously come at it from the perspective of being a white guy. Um, it is, you know, I can't speak to uh, whether or not it lines up with my lived experience because, you know, there isn't really much of a connection there. But what I did notice was that, like you said, I had I had the same thought going through my head. I was like, who is this for? Because actually, I was like, I don't think this is for me either. Um, and the audience that I was sitting around, it, I don't know, where where did you sit? Were you were you downstairs in the orchestra or were you upstairs in the uh, mezzanine? Uh, we were downstairs in the orchestra. Okay. Um, I was I was in the orchestra. I was able to get a, a cheap ticket right before the show from the well cheap quote unquote from the half price ticket booth, you know. And I would say that uh, 
the performance I was at, the audience is probably like 80, 85% black, at least like on the floor. So, oh, so yours was even blacker than yeah, mine. Yeah. Mine, mine, I think, was probably 60, 70, which is still a lot for. And it's kind of funny because for all the self congratulation and talk that, you know, people like Jeremy or Harris were doing about mm-hmm. uh, diversifying theater and bringing it to black people, I mean, this thing has gotten very little press, but I think it's actually quietly accomplished what yeah. Jeremy or Harris claimed to, but totally no, that- didn't. Every, was, every single picture I've seen of someone going to slave players, it's been a sea of white uh, faces. That was my thought exactly. You know, like this show really does actually seem to be finding its audience. Um, and something that I kind of noticed throughout, and, and, you know, you saw the play, like there will be, there are various times throughout the play where the, so the, the, the concept, the setup, and by the way, I took some notes and I didn't have my book with me. So I took them all on this bookmark. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You wrote it so small. I had to. Yeah, you I had to fit it on a bookmark. To make, to make it fit. Um, so we, if, if you want, if we, I have like kind of notes about what happens in each scene and we could sort of recap it a little bit. If that's, if, if that's the direction you want to go, or we could just talk about uh, it in broad stroke. Uh, yeah. I mean, however your notes are written, that's fine. I'll, I'll roll with it because I cool. uh, when I saw it, I didn't write notes because at the time I wasn't thinking about doing a doing a right. show on it. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll follow we'll follow um, your lead. Uh, one thing I will add before you start reading your notes, um, I'm I liked the spirit of the thing mm-hmm. and I liked what it was trying to do. That's why I was so disappointed with the um, actual execution because it felt like it was the black community of the two thousands. It felt like a very two thousands black movie or black play and a lot of things were kind of mixed up as in they seem to be in Bed-Stuy where there's like a Whole Foods in Bed-Stuy but there's also a sneaker drop in Bed-Stuy yeah. which is like okay they don't really have Supreme drops or right. Jordan drops in Bed-Stuy that's not something that they would you know I feel like if they would do that they would do that maybe someplace in Williamsburg yeah or, it, it was like it was sort of lacking it, it, there were a lot of points where it felt like it lacked specificity right yes yes it, it lacked period specificity yes. and geographical specificity it was very weird because that was my thought too especially with like the way that a lot of the flow of the play is where there's sort of like some parts of it that are more like spoken word kind of like beat poetry type stuff and then it'll cut into like a proper scene i was kind of like this to me it was like this feels like the kind of thing that like George C. Wolf would have put up at the public theater in the nineties, like bringing noise, bringing the funk or something like that. Yes, you know? Yes. Um, or, or, or and, like love Jones, like, like, like spoken word isn't really that big a thing anymore, you know? Right. Right. And I mean, I, I think that the quality of the spoken word, it wasn't bad, like, you know, but it, it, it was definitely a very earnest play and a very earnest production overall. And I, I can't fault it for that exactly. Yeah. Um, I just agree with you that it didn't it didn't feel to me like it quite fully accomplished what it set out to do. Um, because, you know, the opening at the very opening of it, and this is going into my notes now, the very first thing that you actually hear, like the 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 pre-show announcement, like the turn off your phones thing, um, is it's the uh, playwright and he says, you know, this is a a new American play for a new Broadway. Um, which to me felt exciting. I like, I love new plays. Um, and we'll get into this a little bit later because I, I, I sort of took some notes about sort of the state of how Broadway has been historically with regard to uh, what plays are produced and put up. Um, and it is true. Like Broadway this season is hands down the most diverse season on Broadway uh, pretty much ever. Like in, in at least in in recent memory. So this idea of like a new Broadway with new um, ways of doing theater is great. And then we sort of jumped into it, and I was like, 
okay, like this is, it's a new play, but is it a play with a new structure or something interesting that's new? And it didn't, it really wasn't. Um, so scene one, you've got these two guys. The one guy's waking up in his penthouse. This other guy is waking up in, I guess, the projects. Um, and then they're kind of like talking about what their mornings are like, you know, and it's very much like the one guy, because he's up in the penthouse, you know, he's on top of the world. He feels great. The other guy is waking up in misery and squalor and he feels bad. And like this is sort of setting up the dichotomy between the two uh, poles of the experience here, right? Of, of, of Along the wealth, I guess, track, right? And then we go into a Whole Foods, which is sort of what you were talking about. And there's this guy who's working the Whole Foods and he is talking about how, and I actually really like this monologue, honestly, Talking about like working at Whole Foods makes him want to fucking kill himself every day. Yeah, are you are you still there? You're, you're, oh, go ahead. Yeah, 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 totally. And you know, like um, I was mixed on that actor because I thought he was pretty funny, but sometimes his shtick and his voice got a little too muggy. Yeah, it was a bit me. broad. I agree. Yeah, it's very broad. But overall, I liked him. I think the reason why I'm kind of mixed on his performance was because, for example, uh, if you watch like a Tyler Perry type stage show or everything everybody's broad mm-hmm. so it works and i think that type of broadness can work if you're in some kind of uh sticky a little more slapsticky type yep. of uh comedic thing where everyone is kind of i think the reason why i was kind of mixed on him was that he seemed to be acting in a different like for example the nigerian barber guy um was talking in a way that was very regal and yeah uh james Earl jones-ish um morgan freeman-ish like Every word felt solemn and serious, like like, like, like the Allstate guy. Mm-hmm. Then you have this guy who seems to be out of like a kind of a UPN sitcom or whatever, but he's doing a good job at it. And then the basketball guy is kind of in a different m- movie or play himself. And I wouldn't say there was any actual bad performance in a vacuum, but I wish the director kind of got the actors more in the same page tone. Yeah. Well, and, and this also comes back to like the concept of the play itself. You know, the title of the play is Thoughts of a Colored Man. So the idea is each of these different characters represents, I guess, sort of a different piece of playwrights thoughts, question mark. The problem is it doesn't really fully commit to that concept in the, in a way that, say, a show like, you know, A Strange Loop does, obviously, where it is very clear that these different voices are the actual voices in his head. And so it's hard to know to what extent these are actually different thoughts versus to what extent they're sort of archetypes. And then they lean so heavy into the archetype that it becomes confusing. Yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally agree. And and by the way, um, for people who are worried about not being able to follow this episode, I should probably put this earlier in the episode. But uh, for people who are worried about not being able to follow this because they haven't seen the play and don't expect to be able to, we're going to tie this into actually bigger trends on yes. on Broadway and theater. You know, as far as diversity and these actions go. So you know, uh, be be patient with us. We'll yeah, yeah. we're, we're going to. Ex- expand the scope of this episode as it goes on. But um, I think the theater was pretty interesting because as I was watching it, to me, I was thinking to myself, right? And this is a very interesting thought uh, to have is I'm surrounded by different Black people in the theater. And as I'm watching it, I was kind of thinking at the two things at once. This seems to be for the white gays in a lot of ways because explaining things that Black people already know about Black life, you know, but also... It's also getting some things wrong or some things are kind of dated. You know what I mean? So I'm like, I feel like this is not really for black people. But then there's some parts that seem so targeted to black people that I thought, okay, um, I wonder if white people are going to get this part or if it's going to feel like it's not for them. So 
in a way, instead of feeling like it was for everybody, it felt like it was um, half for everybody and half not for everybody. If that if that makes sense, mm-hmm. it it um, that seems to be another type of tonal yeah confusion happening. Well, what, what, I'm curious. I, I, what other I let, let, tell you what, let me go through a couple more of these parts and then you can mm-hmm. tell me like from your perspective, which parts of these tracked to you as being very like expository for the broader audience versus specific, like what landed and what didn't in your opinion? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear about. That. Okay, great. Um, so we talked about the guy at Whole Foods and his monologue, you know, feeling absolutely despondent. Uh, we also learned that this guy is depression. That's who this character is. He is the face of depression, right? Um, so then we're in East Flatbush, um, and there are two guys. Uh, one of them is uh, the horny man. Uh, the other one is the uh, the mushy gushy guy. Um, yeah. They're going back and forth. Uh, and again, this scene, I don't know. I thought it was again, kind of fun, right? Like you've got the one guy who, you know, is waxing res- rhapsodic about women and, you know, their beautiful curves. And the other guy's just like, dude, I just want to fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I like that neither was fully caricature, even though. I guess to see someone arguing that they were veering toward it, but mm-hmm. you know, I think I think they did a good job in making them just broad enough, but you know, still kind of three dimensional. The one thing I didn't like was the horny guy talking about um, dating white women and gentrification because it just mm. felt like there was nowhere to go with that, and it felt like unnecessary. As in, like he was talking about how the reason why you know he wanted to date black women, but it didn't work out, and it didn't feel like a genuine conversation. It just seemed like. Um, it it felt like if Twitter was around 2002 or something or 1997, you know, and this was written for the Twitter of 1997 or 2000. Right. Like it was it was strangely like kind of too topical, but the topics were kind of were kind of dated. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like uh, and this didn't, this didn't really kind of ring true. Like I just didn't really buy that guy being um, so from the hood and so still like kind of rude in the hood. But dating all these like white gentrifier women, like it just didn't seem like that would be or if, or if he was going to do that, I would rather him kind of flesh out. Like, how do you meet these women? Like, what do you talk to them about? I think right. they have a conversation about going to one of their houses. Uh, yeah, for- well, there was the whole thing about like going to her house and then meeting her dad. And he told he told him that, like, he voted for Obama. And that just was like, oh, this is just you're just doing the thing from get out. Get out. Right? Yeah. How many times does that line appear in so many things? I've seen so many things since Get Out, where a white person talks about voting for Obama. And I just can't believe people are still uh I mean, I think it's, it's 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 somewhat effective shorthand. Like, yeah. I thought that that moment worked really well in um, Knives Out um, when when there was sort of like the liberal family, you know. Um, but I agree that that was it's probably... overdone. Well, and it was probably even more effective a couple years ago than it is now, right? Yeah, Again, exactly. going back to the point of like, well, now that we've had an entire Trump administration uh, and he didn't win re-election, what that means now is something different from what it meant before. That's a great. That's a great point. That's a great um, point. Um, I, I can't remember. Was there ever a Get Out reference? I feel like everything I watch now is black. Someone mentions Get Out at some point. Um, was there a Get Out? I don't think so. Actually, uh, there was no sunken. There was no sunken place. Actually, wasn't there a sunken place line at some point in this or no? In this? Yeah. I don't know if there was. I'm not. I, I'm not sure. But um, okay. that was the thing that jumped out. This is what me. bothered me about the white, the white dating thing. This is what bothered me. I, I remember now because okay. I, I was having the feeling first, but I couldn't remember exactly the specifics. But I remember what it was. Right. This guy seemed like he was, you know, some dude in the hood who occasionally we got the chance would, you know, hook up with some gentrified girl, or whatever. 
But then he's talking about going to a white woman's house to meet her parents. I'm like, okay, that's a different kind of interracial dating black guy. Like the guy who reaches a point where he's going the white family's house is a different guy who you show me this guy to be so far, which is, you know, this guy from the hood who has flings with, you know, well, right. And and that didn't ring true to me. And to get to that point, too, you have to be committed for a while. And, and from yes. what he was telling us up until that point, it, I, I, I didn't buy him getting to that point either. I think you're exactly right. Um, anyway, uh, after that, we meet another guy. Uh, he is a teacher, um, and he loves all of his students. Uh, isn't that nice? Um, he's going to be having a baby soon. And then we go to a barbershop, which is our first like scene scene. And in this scene... Um, they're having a debate about gentrification and, you know, they're doing the whole, Hey, remember when that place was, uh, this, um, and the, uh, horny guy walks in and, uh, calls the, uh, the sort of like prissy, uh, like bougie black guy. Um, he, 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 well, actually he doesn't call him this, but he uses the F slur and, um, Uh, he doesn't know that the guy is gay. He doesn't know he's gay because the guy is closeted and right hiding it right and, but he says something homophobic in his right. presence and then uh this was the point where i was like oh god are we doing this whole thing again but no thankfully uh immediately the barbershop owner who like you said he has like a very like regal countenance about him um he's like uh no get out of my barbershop uh you can't say that kind of stuff in here and also the rest of the people in the barbershop join in uh right and and say like you know you can't be talking like that you know and and um I think some of the dialogue was heavy handed and didactic and expository. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they would do something very clever and subtle and in ways would kind of make me even matter because I'm like, okay, you have it in you. Yeah. To actually right. Be subtle and clever and subversive at times. So I wish you'd use that more. And one example was in that barbershop scene. Um, the way they reveal he's gay with just a glance at the audience. Yeah. That was and then all the audience was like, oh, you know, was very. And they did it in sort of like a heightened theatrical way that wouldn't have worked anywhere else but on the stage. Like that little look out to the audience in the spot. You can't do that in any form other than theater and have it work. Exactly. And it was so skillfully done. It didn't linger. It wasn't overly heavy handed. He didn't have to tell the tell the audience in um, breaking a breaking the fourth wall speech through Mm -hmm. exposition. You know, he had to say, yeah, I mean, once he did that glance, then he started, you know, explicitly talking to the audience about being gay. But, you know. Up until then, when he revealed it, they just used... I thought that was pretty good. Um, This was an example of when... You were asking for examples when I thought it was talking to the white audience versus the black one. Yes. One example is, even though I hate when a lot of this black stuff made for the white gays exaggerates the toxicity and the emotional verbal violence of the barbershop, um, you know, in their work, Another thing I can't stand is the opposite sometimes, where they try mm-hmm. too hard to be hagiographic or to, or fawning or overstating the importance of the barbershop. Like I feel like the barbershop is, I think haircuts are and hair is very important to black people, but the barbershop, for the most part, is a fun means to an end. Like when it's time to go to the barbershop, you enjoy talking about sports and maybe talking about like different debates of on different topics, but I hate when they act like it's like a social club or the country club of the black community. Like it's not, it's not that like people like, you know, where people just are in the barbershop every day, uh, just hanging out and you know, like people have things to do. You know, the barbershop is like, okay, when it's time to go, I go. And when I recognize people, I talk to them, but you know, 
I'm gonna get my haircut and be and be gone. So the part where the guy's talking about, I forgot what he said. Like, it's a safe space. Yeah, it's a place where he had a like this lead in. Hmm? He had this like lead in. There was like this whole little monologue setting yeah. up the scene that I don't think really needed to be there, honestly. Yeah, and I think most black people don't think of the barbershop like that, but I think they know a lot of white people think the barbershop is like that. So that speaks sure. about you know lionizing and yeah. you know the barbershop is this incredibly sacred almost like a place of worship or, you know, in, you know, I thought it was a bit, was a bit much. That was an example of something that I was like, okay, I feel like this is something done for, um, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I mean, there's, there was a lot of stuff. There were things that I liked about that scene. That I couldn't tell if it was because it was so good or because it was not as bad as I was afraid it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And, and I got to admit, like the way that it handled the black barbershop as not being a place of just a bunch of, uh, hate mongers you know mm-hmm. I, I i appreciated it and some parts of the execution you know i thought were i thought were good yeah and it i think to your point about like how this was it, it, this this isn't in general this play you you had said the whole saturday you'd said to me ahead of when i saw it that you know it was very saturday saturday morning special or whatever or after school special oh, after school special yeah yeah um, the moralizing of it is kind of after school which special. it is but I was I was expecting it to be a much more basic play than it was. Like there there are levels here. Um, the playwright uh, clearly has some skill. You know that this this guy knows what he's doing. Um, it's just that there are moments where you see that, and there's that like actual punch of something, and then and then there's the times of like, who is this for? Is this as assured as it could be? And why why is this choice being made in this moment you know yeah yeah the skill level i thought was very inconsistent in a frustrating in a frustrating way because there were some parts where it felt kind of amateurish and a little too didactic and on the nose and some parts where i you know thought it was very touching and uh heartfelt and and one example that near the end that i thought Mm. was so bad and heavy-handed that it almost undid all the previous goodwill was the shooting. I'm um, oh god, S- spoilers. Uh, no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. I yes, absolutely. Yeah. Wait, I want to get through this to get to there because I have some thoughts about that. Okay. And I want to make sure I, that yeah, we. Yeah, can... yeah, actually, you know what? You're right. We're getting ahead because I think is what's the important. End. I think what leads up to it is really important because yes, right, of the way right. that the play genuinely order. makes you care about these characters, which makes that ending even more disappointing in my opinion. Yeah, because it wasn't necessary. It right. so wasn't necessary. Right. Yeah. Um, so what ends up happening next then is that um, we get a monologue from the from again the bougie guy. So the whole monologue that happens here, though, that is it's about his experience um, and how he's never quite felt like he's fit. Uh, you know, very like you know soul searching, blah blah. Oh, um, by the by the way, uh, the people I went with have been um, guests on the podcast and listen to the podcast. Mm. And one thing that I always complain about in the podcast is that I'm sick of the phrase, uh, too black for the white kids, too white for the black yeah, kids. As yeah, an yeah, origin yeah, story. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when, so he actually and says it literally that said that. He literally <laughs> says that. And then the people I was with just started laughing and looking at me because I always <laughs> say that. I'm sure people in the audience must have been like, why are these guys laughing at that at that line? But yeah, he actually says, too black for the white kids, too white for the black kids. And, we all kind of collectively groaned. Well, and again, it comes back to that thing of like, 
not that this is an invalid sentiment exactly, but isn't there a slightly like more artistic way, like a, a yeah. way to put it that gets closer to the truth and doesn't fall back on cliche so much? That's the thing that bugged me so much was how for every moment of real beauty, it would often fall back on cliche. And that was one of those moments because up until that point, there were a number of things, a number of things about his specific experience and like how that contributed to his upbringing as a person. And then we fell back on what just kind of felt like an old saw again. And I was like, come on, you, I, know, I know you can do better than that. I know that you can take one more hack at that draft and you can come up with something better than that. No, totally, totally. Like, like it was uh, it was a bit much. Yeah, yeah. To totally. Um, so then, uh, then we get back to, um, you know, the, the, the passionate boy and the horny man, uh, and we find out that the, the, uh, the love is, which is his, uh, uh, name because there's love and there's lust, right? Uh, love let his emotions get the best of him and, uh, cheated on, uh, another guy's wife, cheated with another guy's wife. Um, he was too busy exploring her curves to think about their wonderful marriage or whatever. Uh, and then... The next scene, I want, okay, I want to talk about this next scene because this was the one that I actually found most interesting. Um, and it's the basketball coach when he's talking about NIL money and how these kids uh, who, because he, he's coaching, I think it's implied like high school basketball, right? So he's trying to get these kids into, into good colleges. And he's talking about how NIL money, name, image, and likeness money is changing the face of the game and how it has changed the way that he interacts with these kids as a coach and how it yeah. is changing their lives in terms of like how they uh, go out in front of recruiters and in general, how their labor is valued. And this, this was a scene that for me was so different from the rest of the play in that it was very, very specific in a way that the rest of the play I felt really lacked specificity. And I was like, wow, this could actually be an entire play. Like, this is its whole own thing. Yes, yes. And I was wondering if you thought that was a good thing or a bad thing in that, because that was another thing I had kind of a problem with. Okay, like, I felt like, I'm like, is this an example of breath? Like, like this thing just has a, you know, a very good range? Or is it an example of being scatterbrained? Yeah. Yes. And I was going back and forth on that because I'm like, this thing touches on a lot of different things and um, doesn't really focus on any one thing. And sometimes that could be a strength, but sometimes when there's too much meat on the bone, then uh, it actually becomes like a weakness because now it's like, okay, like you said, a lot of these things could be a separate play and, and you've opened up this can of worms that you... Um, didn't really follow through on. So right. yeah, yeah, there were certain things that were half baked, but then there's certain things like the basketball scene where I was like, okay, this could have been its own thing. And I think you did too much to not, you know, just follow through. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, the, the breath versus depth thing is something that I was thinking about constantly, especially after this scene, because that was one of the only scenes in this play that really made me sit up uh, and be like, something really interesting is happening here because there is, and, and maybe you didn't have the same reaction, but that was certainly how I felt because uh, it is an issue that right now completely changing the face of college athletics and has massive, massive uh, future ramifications for what that is going to look like. Um, and it seemed, at least from the way that it was written, that it came from some place of like actual personal experience. Like clearly he has more than a vague understanding of what this situation looks like. And I don't know what it is, but this at least came from a place of research, if not personal experience. Yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally agree. There, there was another thing. I mean, 
a lot of it is ripped from the headlines with uh, black people, right? Like, like thing, or things that black people kind of talk about. You know, in a weird way, the show itself felt like a barbershop conversation. Like a lot of stuff in the show, more than the act, more than the actual barbershop conversation. Uh, if that makes sense. Like the scene in the barbershop, the conversation was kind of barbershoppy, but I think the actual show itself is a better example of what people talk about in barbershops as in, okay. you know, like a lot of the topics, like, you know, I could see in a barbershop people talking about how college sports is changing and everything. Right, right. To the point, I think it might've even been a better show if they just set the whole show in a barbershop and then just let those scenes be different side conversations. Like say like the horny guy and the romantic guy. Right. You know, we're both sitting in the barbershop waiting for their hair and they were waiting for that, you know, and then the conversation gets broken up by one of them getting called to the chair. Then like the gay guy sits down and mm-hmm. like, like I think you could have almost made a, a, one of those single setting plays in a barbershop and managed to squeeze in almost all the same conversation. Like, like right. the whole food guy could have been in there uh, complaining to somebody to the barber about how much he hates whole foods. Well, I think that there. that would definitely be, I think a more effective framing than the framing they went with. Because again, the title and the setup makes you think that it's going to be a play that is in some inside somebody's mind. Yeah, but I and don't it's really, think it's really not. It, it's not like yeah. it's it's a it's a it's a it's a series of anecdotes. It's a it's a character like series of anecdotes kind of play. It's vignettes, yeah, exactly. right? The framing is very um is very is very dubious, and um I haven't seen. I've been getting into theater more lately, so I have not mm-hmm. actually seen a lot of theater. Uh, either. You saw Strange Loop, though, right? Yeah, I saw Strange Loop. I saw Slave Play, and uh, through my friendship with uh, Michael R. Jackson of uh, A Strange Loop, uh, he's been getting me more into theater, and we've been like seeing different shows and stuff. And I started kind of catching the the theater bug mm-hmm. and everything. And I think also too, because I was not that crazy about uh, Slave Play. I think Strange Loop was kind of a palate cleanser for me, mm-hmm. and then that kind of ignited like a little bit of a theater bug in me. But I can't say I've seen a ton of the different, you know black plays that are out there because then after that the pandemic hit right so then uh you know i wasn't able to see a lot of this stuff uh even if i wanted to you know? so i didn't get to see things like what's the one that everyone's talking about like fairview and oh yeah fairview's fairview's incredible um yeah I don't... I... yeah good no i was saying it it had a um a, a sort of an encore um run at theater for a new audience you know on ashland place in brooklyn and I would love for it to get a Broadway production, but it would be very difficult for that to happen. Um, both oh, oh, wait, because it would it be ne- risky. Has it never had a Broadway production? It is not. It's only been off. Oh, that's crazy! Because the way it's so renowned and well known, I thought it would have had been on Broadway by now. Yeah, it, it would be. It would be a challenge, though, for two reasons. First of all, the risk artistically, uh, and secondly, logistically speaking, for reasons that I can't explain without spoiling the entire play, it would be very difficult to do on Broadway. Mm, very i'm very very interested now uh yeah so so it's like it's 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 very interesting the whole the whole um thing you describe right is that i don't really have an idea of what the state of uh diverse broadway is is like now you know so so i can't yeah. say what is the norm uh you know um how this compares to everything everything else so um i don't know i don't know what your experience has been well actually i guess we should just focus on this play yeah well and, I, and then the, move on move on to the bigger was, picture i think uh, it was after. actually i'm just like looking at the notes here and 
it was around this scene or after this scene that it actually started to get a lot less interesting to me. <laughs> mm. So we can just recap this stuff. Um, so uh, the the um, horny man comes back to the barbershop to apologize to, um, you know, the, the old wise man. Uh, and they sort of have a moment of reconciliation. Um, and then they get into, and then, and then there are some other guys uh, and they're doing sort of like the, well, when I was a kid, we were so poor that whatever. And then they end up getting into a fight for some reason. Then uh, the guy from before, the teacher guy, we confirm that he is in fact having a baby and that his baby is going to be the grandchild of the old wise guy. Um, and he talks about how much he loves his wife because he's a wife guy. Um, and then, <laughs> he totally is, yeah. <laughs> He's such a fucking wife guy. Oh, oh but by the way, um, something that kept happening to myself and the people that I went with uh, was uh, there were two scenes. One was the old barber who was the wife guy. And one was the uh, romantic beat poetry guy who uh, does like the beat poetry. And for both of them. Yeah. He's the guy. Who, he's the guy who's having a baby. And then well, oh, they're oh, both, they're both wife guy. The, oh, yeah, the, oh yeah. No, no, no. I'm not talking about that guy. I'm talking about oh. the guy who's a friend of the of horny man. Oh, the, the yeah, yeah. 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 That guy. But yo, what was funny about for both of them, they used the same device of having a silhouette of a black woman dancing. Yeah. And it wasn't, and it wasn't it was very so well rendered either. It was, yeah, it yeah. was not good. We ended up laughing out loud yeah my friends and i in a way that i know we were not supposed to be laughing <laughs> like, like it was so cheesy I can't it was really cheesy it to the audience but basically while well, the guy's being a wife guy and talking about how great his wife is <laughs> and then later on the romantic slam poetry guy yeah. is talking about how much he loves women for both scenes they, they <laughs> use a projector to show this um woman in this dress and her yeah and it's on like a good. purple it's on like a purple background yeah. and she's just like turning around and doing nothing else <laughs> yeah she's turning around and kind of swaying side by side and flaring her dress and it's i'm so, so glad that i'm not the only person who that did not work for oh, i was like was i see so what you're corny. going for yeah. but this does not work it was not necessary it was cheesy and we just started cracking up and i was trying not to laugh yeah, the whole place was kind of quiet, but yeah, yeah, that was that was that was horrible. And, the and then the next scene after that is three of the guys talking about how their dads weren't there for them when they were kids, and they're each talking about the impact that that had on them growing up. Their dads were not there for them in different ways, or were ver di pieces of shit in different ways. And then we get the scene that you were talking about where the horny boy, uh, not the horny boy, the, the other boy, the, the, the romantic boy, uh, he's like doing slam poetry and he's going like, ah. yeah. uh, and, and, and I did like the lighting effect where they uh, put stars over the entire theater. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that part was cool. Actually, I remembered what the woman in the dress silhouette uh, felt like to me. This thought actually came to my head. Do you know that swaying thing that they have outside of like car dealerships that like uh, balloon, <laughs> that balloon that sways back and forth in the wind? That's I mean, you're, not wrong. you're not wrong. Like, hmm? yeah, you're yeah, not wrong. You're not wrong at all. Like that. Like, like, yeah. that like it's a kind of dress. Like, it's supposed to be like sexy yep. romantic. And yeah. She was swaying in a way that reminded me of that, that inflatable man outside the car dealership. Just kind of like flailing broadly. <laughs> yeah, it was not good dancing. I was like, come on, you're on you're on Broadway. You, you can find anybody. You can do better. A, a better dancer than that. Well, it's like, yeah, exactly. Like you have access to world-class dancers. Surely you can do better than this. Yeah. And, and you know, what, you know what it reminded me of too? It, um, like, like, you know, some things that people think that they can do 
because it looks like deceptively simple. Like, oh, I can mm-hmm. just master this music. Like conducting an orchestra, people think, right. oh, I just wave a wand. Or, you know, when someone thinks tap dancing, oh, I can do tap dancing. That's not hard. And they, they try it and it sounds like terrible. I felt like someone was trying to just fake their way through Alvin Ailey-ish dancing. They're like, oh, absolutely. Oh, I've seen Alvin Ailey. I don't need to be trained in this. I just do this certain type of sway because I think it was trying to be untrained uh, Alvin Ailey. Well, someone was like faking it. Yeah, and I think what's unfortunate about that, too, is that if they had gotten somebody who was, like you said, an actual Alvin Ailey dancer or something like that, I I mean, I still don't know if the moment would have worked, honestly, because the beat poetry that was over the thing was so fucking cheesy that I don't know if it would have worked or not, but it would have had a much better chance of working. I can definitely say that. Um, Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, after that scene, uh, the, uh, the the baby has now been born. He's talking to his baby. That was kind of sweet. Um, and then we get to the last scene. And they're at a sneaker drop. They're getting there. They, they've they've it's it's all of them right online uh, or most of them, at least. And uh, there is they're waiting for Jordan's uh, a new Jordan drop. And uh, yeah, why don't why don't you <laughs> seems like you wanted to talk about uh, this scene and how it goes. So tell, tell me about uh, your thoughts. Now, it's been a little bit since I've um, seen it. You've seen it more recently than I have. I think I saw it maybe in October, maybe. OK, my impression and tell me if I'm wrong, is that the drop. Well, first off, one mistake I think they did. I think they should have made it a nondescript every hood. You know, like like it could be any gentrifying place anywhere in the country, but they made it specifically, I think, Bedford Stuyvesant. I think it was Bedsty, yeah. Yeah. And um if it wasn't Bedsty, it was like they 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 sort of split the time between Bedsty and East Flatbush. So I think it was one of those. Yeah, yeah. And it just never felt authentically like Bedsty to me. And and if I remember correctly, I think the sneaker drop, it wasn't that they all left Bedsty to go to the sneaker drop so much as uh, the sneaker drop was in Bed-Stuy, which didn't quite feel right. Yeah. Like, I just don't feel like they would have a major sneaker drop in uh, like that, like that in, in Bed-Stuy, just because it just didn't seem like something that they would do. But yeah. anyway. Like Not me, yet, at least. Give it another 10 years and maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think to me, that's something they do more like in Williamsburg or something, right. maybe Bushwick, I, if maybe. But I feel like they would still do that mainly in Manhattan. I don't know. But Yeah, no, you're right. But they so suppose you think it's in Bedstein and um they're online and then while they're online, they do something similar with Jordans that they do with um the barbershop where they make yeah. the Jordans into this kind of uh almost religious iconic iconography among black men. And I'm I'm pretty sure they actually explicitly compare it to religious religious iconography, or at least they come damn close. Like how like yeah. getting your first Jordans is a rite of passage and all that kind of shit. Yeah, yeah, to- totally like like a male ritual and everything. Right. And and it's like I'm not gonna lie and say that uh you know Jordans don't have an importance, you know, in the black community. But I think Jordans are one of those things that have trans like I see soccer moms wearing mm-hmm. like Jordans now. You know, like it's not I feel like what it used to be, you know, like, uh, and I also feel like they went too far again. And that's another scene where right. I'm like, okay, is this for like white people? Like, like they want to uh, explain black culture to white people, even if they have to exaggerate and make it like, it feels like something that call on the show. Well, I didn't um, coin this. It's something, a term that already exists, but um, I've talked about this book before. I think the guy's name is Dean McCandle and the book is called The Tourist. And it talks about how there's something called tourist and a traveler and the tourist is the person who just wants to go see the tourist traps right. and wants to go eat at mcdonald's or sit in the resort with the traveler olive so, garden <laughs> yeah exactly they'll go, they'll go to mexico and then eat a taco bell right that opened in mexico you know and stuff <laughs> like that whereas um uh, the 
the traveler is the person who um, goes places and wants to see something authentic. So they'll go backpacking through Vietnam. They'll stay in a in a favela when they go to Brazil. They'll um, rent an Airbnb and live in a neighborhood, and they'll want to like you know sit in one of those third places somewhere where where the locals are and be in the Belgian version of Cheers and talk to the locals. And what the a book said is that an interesting phenomenon that happens is if a location gets enough travelers, then they start doing something called stage authenticity, where they start creating fake versions of what they think the travelers believe mm-hmm. is an authentic experience. So they will start becoming a hyper real version of themselves to cater to the traveler daughters. So the traveler, without realizing it, becomes a tourist and ends up consuming an authentic an authentic experience uh, in a similar way that the tourist does, except it's more hidden and, and plausible. And I feel like a lot of that was happening in the explainer parts of this, where yeah. I felt like in some parts, they were describing something authentic to um, Black life, but they were exaggerating it to make it seem more interesting to the white audience. Like, like And they were doing that stage authenticity thing. And the barbershop was one scene of that, but the... Um, sneaker the sneaker and jordan thing i thought was another thing where they weren't outright lying like you know a lot of black guys do like jordans jordans you know are an iconic uh thing they just went like way too far and i think they were doing it because they thought this is what you know white people find interesting you know yeah well yeah and i mean i think you know speaking uh as a white guy who uh, (laughs) i think i was the audience for those explanations i think you're exactly right where and i don't know if it was just like the playwright wanted to be like, look, I don't want to leave anybody out, you know? So maybe I want to go a little bit over the top on exposition for this to make sure that nobody feels left out. But from my perspective, I think that the rest of the play did a good enough job of just telling the story without doing that, that I don't really, I I, I didn't understand why that was needed. Other than maybe, maybe, this is my other thought, is that it could be so that like the real barbershop heads in the crowd <laughs> or the real Jordan heads in the crowd would be like, yep, that's right. Yep, that sure is great. Um, which I think is part of it too, honestly. Yeah, and this was interesting too, right? I'm glad you said that because there were some scenes, right, where I thought, oh, this is a little bit too much. But I would hear a black person in the audience go, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, well, somebody, even though to me this is like stage authenticity, some of these people in the audience are, um, but they're not that thinking, are you doing that because um, it's true or you yourself want to buy into the legend? Because I think sometimes people, even if it's from, like, like for example, like people who go watch something uh, that's very uh, pro-America and, right. you know, very whatever, they believe it, they buy into their own myth, you know? So, so you know, I think sometimes, you know, there are some Black people who do like to um, propagate or who believe those exaggerated notions of, you know, black life. Like, like maybe he is a black playwright. Maybe he really does believe that that Jordans are that, that sacred, you know, maybe he is someone who has convinced himself. The barbershop is, um, this incredibly sacred space. That is a haven from the slings and arrows of, of white supremacy. Like, uh, maybe that's his, his lived experience. And me and my friends have our own, um, less romantic experience of those things. Cause yes, yeah, it, I did notice some of those scenes that kind of made my eyes roll or whatever. It came off inauthentic. There were black people in the audience who were like, mm-hmm, you, yeah, you testify. my, my audience was also very vocal um, yeah. by that, but it was, it was a really, and, and, you know, 
this kind of goes back and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but to the point of like sort of your normal broad, uh, Broadway audience, quote unquote normal versus this audience, the fact that it was a predominantly black audience, it was much more vocal than any Broadway crowd I've ever been a part of. Um, because, you know, white people just love to sit there with their hands in their laps and just maybe the most you'll get out of them is like a, um, yep, and that's yep, about yep. it. Right. Um, and there was something about the, the thing that made me think, oh, wow, this play is definitely in, in a lot of ways finding its audience. You could tell that so many people who were watching the play were deeply, deeply engaged with what was going on. And you could literally hear it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, you know, part of that also comes from the fact that it's um, nothing it's doing is like, 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 for, like, for example, there's a show called Harlem on Amazon Prime. And it recently went viral on Twitter this week because they had their own barbershop scene. But their barbershop scene was this black woman, excuse me, goes into a barbershop because she has like natural hair and wants to get her hair done. And the black man in the barbershop, it's the total opposite of mm. that scene where um, this guy's in there. And he's talking about, um, you know, ejaculating in women's faces and all this crass, all this stuff. And she's like, can you stop talking like that? And he's like, that's how we talk in the barbershop. We talk about busting nuts and faces. We use the word skeeting, <laughs> and, uh, which is like a, a dated uh, yeah, who says skeet anymore? Yeah, no one even says skeet anymore, right? So it, it was dated and whatever. And I hear that all I think of is uh, three, six, nine down the line. Yeah, like, yeah. How yeah, long yeah, is it yeah. been? Or, 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 or little John? That was that was another one. No, that's yeah. That does he say that? Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait. Was that little John song? I yeah, never the ski ski motherfucker. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I never listened to a lot of uh, that's Lil um John. yeah yeah yeah. Well, it was featuring little John. It was um. Was it three six? It was three six, three, three, six mafia. Cause that's why they say three, six, nine. Right. Anyway, now I'm really in the weeds with it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, uh, get low Lil John. I'm looking it up be clear. Uh, no, it was, it was, it was Lil John and the East side boys. Okay. Yeah. Cause I remember he even had a song called skeet skeet. Uh, was that okay. the same song? I, that might've been a different, <laughs> anyway, Lil John's, uh, 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 sort of place in, in the culture has maybe waned a little bit since the peak of, but again, it go it goes back. Well, this is, this is a different show, but I feel like it would also not be out of place to hear the word skeet in this play either, even though I don't think it was actually said because this was, uh, like Very 2002, 2003, right? This was right around again. The, I don't know why all these people are like stuck in that era specifically. Uh, my friend told me that the guy who wrote it had been writing it for a long time. And that, mm. that the story was that he wrote it. He was, he was working on it for like over this, a decade. This play specifically? Uh, yeah, I think it's what I heard. Uh, yeah. So I, so I think that maybe he right. just literally didn't change a lot of, a lot of things. Yeah, and, and, and I bet the reason that that whole scene with the basketball coach, the reason that feels the most fresh is that it actually is the most fresh. I bet that's the part of the play that was written most recently. Mm, that, makes, that makes sense. Because if you that think about sense. it, you couldn't have even been talking about NIL money up until like what two three years ago that's a good that's a good point yeah yeah so so yeah it, it, it was uh but the reason i bring up that scene right is that scene just felt like total science fiction you know what i mean whereas this scene even to the levels it was inauthentic it was still kind of authentic like when you say when you say that scene you're talking about the scene in harlem when you say this scene you're talking about the scene in the play with the jordans uh yeah, you're, that's a good point. Maybe more specific. So, so like um, scenes that I thought were a little bit too much that, but some black people in the audience um, were being vocal toward and resonating, and you know, seemed to think it was more authentic than I did. Like, like the barbershop mm-hmm. over the top, like sacred space talk, or the um, Jordans as like a rite rite of passage. You know, and it made it seem like some sacred uh, 
heirloom or something or, you know, whatever. You know, various things like that. Uh, at least they were rooted in some kind of reality. So even if it was exaggerated, you know, I could see uh, somebody still um, having it resonate with them or even maybe mm-hmm. thinking similarly, whereas things like that scene in Harlem just felt like surreal. Like it was yeah. just science fiction. So I will give this show, I mean, this this play, that amount of credit. That right. it, um, even though sometimes it seemed dated, sometimes it seemed inauthentic, uh, as, like on little details, like for example, the... Sneaker drop being in in Bed Stuy and forming a big line in um Bed Stuy. Like I'm trying to think, like what street in Bed Stuy would have enough room that you can just have a giant sneaker drop? Yeah, line? Well, I mean, anyway. yeah, no, uh, unless it was supposed to be. And again, I it, it's very unclear. It is possible that they went downtown for this. Um, yeah, maybe that's if, what happened. I but if yeah, it was, I guess, yeah. but also if it was downtown, there wouldn't have been a drive by, which concludes this play. By the way, the play concludes yes. with a drive by shooting, and that's the part. That is the problem. If it's not in Bed-Stuy or, or someplace that's still gentrifying, and you put it in Williamsburg, the, the drive-by that happens would make no sense. Like, why would somebody do a drive-by there? Yeah, and that drive-by just felt like, seriously? Like, why would someone do a drive-by on the line? Maybe some maybe their enemy was on the line. I mean, explain. Like, they never explained why the drive-by happened, right? No, no, they didn't. Um, They didn't explain why it happened. Uh. It was unclear at best as to why that guy actually got shot. I mean, it's I guess it was just like, you know, he was presumably the victim of, you know, uh, uh, collateral damage or whatever. But yeah, it, and it's just, it's it feels so contrived coming out of the end of that, particularly for like a play that up until that point is... And I get, again, I get why, but it was just, again, g- going back to the point of cliche, right? This is the most possible, the most cliche possible way that you could wrap up a play like this. Totally. And, and it totally felt like it was drawing from black movies more yeah. than black life. Like it felt like the last scene of Menace Society. It felt like the last scene where Ricky gets shot in Boys in the Hood. Like it just felt like you're recognizing a trope yep. at that point more than you're recognizing real life. Because it also doesn't connect at all. I mean, there there really wasn't other than like in terms of like gang violence. Um, there's like it's touched on a little bit, but gang violence is not, or just gangs in general are not a theme of this play. Um, so it that that also makes it come so far out of left field. I feel like it because like. Again, if you wanted this to be the payoff, uh, presumably you would want to foreshadow that somehow or set it up in some way, shape or form that makes you realize, okay, this is part of the universe that we are inhabiting. Whereas it sort of just feels like a deus ex machina instead. Yeah. Like what is the opposite of a deus ex machina? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're right. Yeah. If a deus ex machina is like some godlike figure just coming to save everything, this was like... uh, the God, the machine coming to destroy. It was like, right. okay, we need some trauma. It was like the deus ex machina of trauma. Like, you right. know, okay, nothing uh, traumatic has happened yet and it's black. So we need trauma in it. Everybody right. knows black stuff needs uh, trauma. So then let's just have like an act of God just come in and just uh, give us our traumatic moment that is totally unearned. And you're totally right. Like in the universe of menace to society, in the universe of boys in the hood, there's mm-hmm. a, constant backdrop of gangs and violence even if gangs aren't the main part of it like boys in the hood wasn't about gangsters the way that menace society was but gangsters and gangs are a constant right presence in that in that universe so that when um ricky does get shot it's earned you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and there was the beef with the gangsters earlier that happened you know at, at the swap meet you know and 
And uh, in Menace to Society, it's earned because you see what happened earlier that um, gets him the retribution where he gets shot. But this thing was like had nothing to do with gangs. This area is supposed to be so gentrified now. Right. And, and none of these people are involved in gangs. So it just right. seemed like a punctuation that was added onto the wrong sentence. And yes, that's such a good way of putting it. Um, and, and it comes back to, to what we were talking about earlier with uh, specificity or lack thereof, right? And, you know, also, this is, this is Bed-Stuy in 2021. <laughs> yeah. The, the nature of, uh, of, 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 like, the socioeconomic makeup of the neighborhood and the borough more broadly has changed so dramatically. And the nature I, of crime and the nature of all of these things has just changed. Even when you live by the projects, like I lived by the projects for like a long time and you don't really see a lot of or hear a lot of police reports or anything like like the way it used to be when uh, in the 90s you used to hear like stuff like all the time. Right. You know, it's, it's very it's very, you know, different. So it's like the idea like for something like that to happen, usually when I hear about like a shooting like that or something which is like more and more rare, is usually something very, very targeted. Uh, that's know? what I was going to say the exact same thing. You yeah. know who your target is and you are aiming to hit that target. You're not going to fuck with collateral. Like if you end up inflicting collateral damage, that's going to be a problem for you. So you're going to seek to avoid that as much as possible. Yeah. So, so this idea that you just shoot up a whole, a whole sneaker line. Like when does it get the guy in front sense. of his... In front on his block in front of his house. Right, right. Because you know? you're gonna know where he lives. Like it just it yeah. just doesn't make sense. Yeah, like for example, there was someone that was um shot a couple blocks from me, right? I, I can think of two recent shootings. A guy that was shot in a car that worked at um I was acquaintances with him. He worked at a bar that I used to go to and then he started oh, working at a local um a local food spot, right? And then um one day I found out he got shot somebody he was getting into an uber or a lyft or something some uh somebody rode by in a bicycle and shot him up getting off of work getting into an, an uber and, and spread off on the bike and they found out later that it was like might have been some ex of um some woman he was dating or something Jesus. or whatever it, it was pretty it was pretty messed up but it was a very specific thing yeah they got him outside of well where he worked and, and everything. There was a and, similar situation in a block that I lived on where um, there was like this one house on the block, right? And, and that's oftentimes how it is. There was the one house on the block where I don't, I don't remember exactly what the story was, but like there were some people in there who were mixed up with stuff they shouldn't have been mixed up with. Um, eventually, uh, there was, I think, a drive-by at the house. Uh, one of them got shot. Um, they moved out. Whoever was still left moved out. And then the block was quiet again because that's the nature of like how these things are. They're so specific. They're so targeted. And it is very different from how things were before where like, yes, collateral damage is still a thing, but it doesn't blight the block in the way that used to be the case. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.